Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. It is the Pop Cult Podcast, and yes, this week we're going to be talking about Mithrigan bitches, <laughs> but that will come a little later. Uh, before we get to that, we are going to be doing another uh, segment of what we've been reading. Going to be talking about some of the books that are highlights of the last few months that we've read. So, uh, Ariana, a lot of these books probably came from the tail end of 2022. Yeah. Right. Did you feel like 2022 was a good book reading year for you? Or I, I read a lot of comic books okay. that year. Okay. Um, but... There's some books that I did finish on the tail end or like started this year that I that I wrapped up. I don't know if I'm gonna like select or talk about them too much because we've already spoken about them in mm-hmm. the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, um, do you have a lot of books you're looking forward to reading this year, or are you just kind of going in blind? There are books that I have to remind myself to just be like, hey, I really wanted to read that book. I need to like find it and buckle down but then again like my form of reading thanks to you is almost like a russian roulette kind of thing i'll be like okay because just load up your yeah, kindle you just load up my kindle because you're like put books on this and i'm like okay and, and then like i also realized like oh i do want to start reading like other stuff that i know that for you you're like ugh, why would you read that but i'm like you know what sometimes i do enjoy reading stupid shit just i think for me reading is something that takes so much more time than watching a show or a mm-hmm. movie or a youtube video so when i read something i don't like to read like there's nothing i read that i would consider like oh that's dumb i know there are people that would consider certain things that i read as dumb like i read a lot of horror fiction Mm-hmm. That isn't necessarily like the most highbrow literature, yeah. but I'm like, no, but it's good because it's still like there's ideas and things going on in there that yeah, are interesting. Yeah, I do realize like um, I am picky even when it comes to the viewing some of my stuff. Like when I sit down to watch a show, it can be kind of random, but I know I I feel like lately I have been becoming more selective, and it's not because I was just like. I know that there's there's just a certain kind of silly that I enjoy that I'm okay going through. And then there's a certain type of silly that I'm just like, this is not for me. I do not enjoy this. Well, I feel like in American media, and this is like books, TV, everything, there's like this dumb silly that like I don't find funny at all. And I don't know if it's just like a generational age thing, like you know how humor changes and taste and all that. But it really seems like lowest common denominator garbage. No, I think it's... <laughs> you're a little bit more pessimistic and mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that i feel as if that America, i'm not pessimistic i'm just an angry idealist no it's just it's also like the stuff that people really glow on to seems like stuff that like we at the end and particularly like you you can't get into like, I think about how Parks and Recs at the end, we ended up, like, not really watching, uh, like, towards the end. We watched almost, like, the last few episodes to just see what everybody was talking about. But it just, having worked with nonprofit, working at, like, having spoken with people in politics, you're kind of like, this isn't cute anymore because we're, like, they're supposed to be in politics and nothing is getting done. Versus Veep, that might has a sharper edge mm-hmm. and is self-critical. That was, was, like, a little bit too much. And, like, for example, Abbott Elementary, which I've 
like kind of started to watch on my own which I can find funny but you being a former teacher I feel like that's hard for you to be like I can't make the burnout cute yeah the things that Abbott Elementary finds humor in I just personally don't I think there's humor to be found in a mm-hmm. school I know we're not even talking about books right now but this is just a good <laughs> conversation uh, there is humor to be found in public education yeah but for me like because I've toyed like over the last year or so with you know writing about a teacher as a main character and there's no idea I come up with in which I see it as like comedic there are funny things that I can put in it but yeah. for me it's it's just sad <laughs> that's the way I like yeah. for me if you want to do a show about public education it has to have a very strong undercurrent of sadness and you can have moments of humor and lightness along the way but it's ultimately a very sad profession at the moment yeah. at least and it's sort of like in a sense you haven't really gone through the morning aspect so for you to watch something and have been too still close to it it's hard to just be like ha ha, ha how cute um, especially when it's a documentary style, when the person is talking and, yeah, at and the camera. That's another aesthetic I don't like. Is yeah. the, the, the office kind of gave us was this characters looking direct to camera and like mugging for the camera. I don't. I just. Yeah. I don't find that funny at all. Yeah. It's just not my thing. So books. Okay, books. Books. What's the first book you're going to recommend from your what we've been reading list? So I'm going to talk about a book that I actually didn't enjoy that much that's funny because my first book is gonna be i didn't enjoy it that much either so it is the babysitter at rest by uh jen george okay is this a book i gave to you yeah it's um it's fiction five stories um several as long as uh, like novellas they introduced like you're being introduced to jen george oh like george and it's just so is it a short story collection? Yes, a short story collection. A short story? Short stories. <laughs> uh, short story collection. I I really wish I liked this. I wish that I had liked it, but there's just something about it that felt like it was just being like gruesome and weird without really like a connection emotionally to stuff. So is this like a horror story? collection it's, it doesn't feel like a or, or is it, does it feel like literary stories it's just literary stories it's like stories that aren't really like set in reality which i would have been fine with so is it kind of like just that like, thing where like literary fiction will sometimes put sort of fantastic concepts it's like that mix of kind of magic realism almost yeah like okay. there's a story in where she's in the hospital and she's dealing with different people that are treating her and that her disease isn't really claimed, but then there's, like, doctors that she's having sex with or, like, mentions of, like, uh, sexually explicit things. And it just feels almost exploitative at times. And it just feels like it's, like, oh, she's trying to make something sexy out of something that just feels kind of bland. And then the last story is supposed to be a art school called The Warehouse, where the students are divided um, but in time between orgies, art critics, and burying dead racehorses. And it's supposed to be like slapstick. what was the last thing? Like burying dead racehorses. Okay. So is it like very absurdist? Yes. Okay. And it's just like... That stuff can either be very hit or miss. Like Yeah, and I just yeah. was like, I, I finished it because a lot of times with short stories, and I'm sure you've had it, that mm-hmm. there's some stories that you're like... 
oh, I can see a hint of something that I'd like in it. And there's probably a few that I was just like, oh, okay, sure. But then it just got to the point I'm like, ah, oh, this is the whole thing. This is your whole thing. Because yeah. that's with short story collections, like you have the two different kinds. You'll have like an author-centered collection or then an anthology with a bunch of different. Yeah. And the anthologies, I usually feel like I have more luck with even if I get off to a bad start, mm-hmm. the author-centered ones, once you kind of get a sense of that author's voice in the first couple stories, if it's not a voice you like, it can make it a real slog to get through. Yeah, and, like, I finished it because it was pretty short, but it's just, like, the first one is about a babysitter, and she's always wearing a bikini and how she's having sex with, like, the dad, but the mom doesn't care, and, you know, like... So they, like, they sound very sexually explicit. Yeah, it, but and it's, it's a female author, Jen George? Yeah, okay. and so it's funny because it's, like, for example, I had to read smut books occasionally, but even then... Not under the roof of this Christian home, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's done in private, so the sinners... <laughs> like, I don't know. You have to do confessional afterwards. Yep, in the bathroom by myself. Yep. Um, but it just... Again, I, I wish I'd liked it. Um, it's It's supposed to be dark, and like from looking at like... My story graph, like, like 60%, 66% of people were like, oh, it's funny. And I was just like, I just did not care for it. There were some articles I've seen coming across some of, like, the... Uh, sometimes there's a lot of, like, magazines or magazine-type websites that can be a little um, annoying. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, like, because uh, I'm a big reader of, like, Lit Hub and bookmarks and things like that and electric literature... Uh, but I have seen a few articles where they're talking about the idea of there's this trend now in modern literature about uh, the form is very good, but the content isn't. And it's that sort of like, yeah, technically it's well written, yeah, but it's absolutely like a slog to get through and read at the end of the day. And I'm noticing that. I'm starting to, like, shy away from a lot of newer books that are coming out, unless they're from authors I kind of know, or it's a nonfiction book that's sort of, you know, similarly politically minded to me. But anything that's sort of like a uh, New York Times literary darling book, I have a real hard time, like, getting into because they often seem so impressed with themselves yeah, it's it's as if like it feels like to me. Um, I forgot the almost like the name of the book. I know like Neil Gaiman really loved it, and it was another female author. Oh god, I can't remember the name. It was like Magical Stump something. Um, that was a really good book that had like magical elements and. Was it a Kelly Link book? Yes. Kelly, yeah, I think Kelly Link right, and she. But see, at this point for me, she's one of those old timers because yeah. I can remember reading her early in college. Mm-hmm. These are like new, these sort of literary ingenues where they're like, oh, this new voice from some you know East Coast or you know Iowa University Writers Workshop, and they're like, oh, but then like you look into their background and they kind of it's very Lena Dunham esque. Yes, I was thinking about that right yeah, now. It feels like uh, because I, and funny enough, I was watching Girls on my iPad. Why the like, hell would you do that I was to watching, yourself? like, the first... Uh, well, because, like, we talked about this. Like, there's certain... like. Why I, are you self-harming? That's my question. Because the thing is, like, 
whenever I am starting to watch something on my iPad, you'll like peek over and you'll and like and this has happened already to me twice where you're just like, what? You're starting that? No, no, we're watching That's that. That's been like two shows. But Come it's on. okay. It's two shows. But th- then I'm down to the mark. I have got nothing else that I want to watch. There's plenty of <laughs> shit on HBO Max. It's, no, it's really like it is. It is. It is. It is not good. It is not good. But yeah, <laughs> Lena Dunham, like maybe not her specifically, but the type of person she represents, is very ever present. I think right now in what is considered, you know, the sort of upper echelon of literature well, in I, America, and it is some insufferable shit. I think the problem it to do is that when I think about Lena Dunham, and I was watching that first half episode of Girls. She is so good when it's like when it's like talking about herself, right? And how flawed she, she is. How flawed she is. Yeah. Like the fact self-deprecation. That she, she's yeah, very good at. Not even like, and it necessarily doesn't but have to be. It's not like super cruel, but it's yeah. just commentary on herself. Yeah. Versus like I think Phoebe Bridgewaller, who like Phoebe Waller Bridger, yeah, Bridge, who did yeah. like Fleabag Lady. Fleabag. She, those two uh, like seasons are beautiful. But it's also because see, I can't like, get into her. You can't get into it. I can get. She into has such it. a privileged background that I cannot stomach it. But even in her privileged background, at the least she can go deep into emotions. But the thing is, like, okay, we'll say Fleabag. We'll give her a pass on that. Everything she's done since has been the most commercialized shit. She was in a Star Wars movie. Yeah. She's going to be in an Indiana Jones movie. She just got announced she's going to be writing for Amazon Prime a but Tomb Raider TV the thing series. Is like, okay. Which, I mean, she'll do well. That I, Tomb Raider is about okay, a privileged me, English yeah. rich girl, so she finish, should do like, well. Yeah. Bag, when it comes to the emotions, was great. When it comes to emotions, my problem with the Lena Dunham esque kind of writing is when they try to go outside of the realm of what they are and then try to be inclusive but miss the mark entirely because they're not listening to other people. In fact, they're kind of like, I wish I was that oppressed so I'm able to write about it. Well, I mean, yeah, she literally did say at one point that she wished she had had an abortion so she could be able to write more authentically about it. And it's like, Instead uh... Instead having conversations with people that Yeah, just gone. talk to people. That you, I'm sure you know people that have had abortions, because, Lena. Like, I feel like if a good writer means that they are able to listen and have empathy and then convey yeah. it in words. Well, I mean, that's also another trend I really don't like. And there's an aspect of it that's good in that they're saying, hey, you know, let's let black people use their voice to talk about black characters more often mm-hmm. rather than just waiting for white authors to get around to it, right? That's good. But then there's this weird other thing that is that Lena Dunham-esque thing where it's like, oh, well, you know, you can't write about this very niche particular experience of being a woman even though you are a woman because you haven't experienced that specific thing. Well, I think it's a And it's like, I don't... I mean, but but being a writer is also about imagining and being creative and listening. the problem having to do with the fact that those white writers end up getting all the praise. Like, um... There's, like, this one woman that's, like, Evelyn Hugo and her seven husbands. Like, apparently she's been called out because she makes her characters people of color and then does not promote other people of color. Or there's also been, like, on Book Talk, there's been, like, a trend of white women marrying men of color then taking their last names to write books. Yikes. So, like, there is an argument (laughs) for that. Because, like, the best (laughs) books that I've written, like, I've read that I've deeply related to had to be women of color coming in and writing these 
deep stories that I'm just like, oh, like Luster. Luster is an amazing fucking book. But it's like you end up writing, reading a book by this white woman who's like, I'm going to give you a person of color, guys. And then it's just sort of a mess. But well, now with your book. Uh, well, my book is also, I don't think I disliked it as much as you disliked that book. The yeah. Babysitter at Rest, right? Mm -hmm. So by Jen George. So folks out there, put this on your do not read list. <laughs> I mean, if you like it, go your DNR. For it. It's just not mine. Um, so the book I read that I don't, don't say I disliked it. It was just a book that when I got done, I was like, hmm. If I had written this, there were certain things I would have changed about it, and it wasn't necessary. It didn't necessarily match my expectations. Uh, and it's called American War by Omar El Akkad, who is an Egyptian journalist. Yeah. And so he wrote a novel about a future American civil war. Uh, the plot is told using um, historiographic metafiction uh, by a future historian. So it's fictionalized accounts. So it's like a narrative written about things that happened interspersed with what are artifacts from this future war where it's like an interview with a prominent figure or a news article and then in between we're following this one singular character through the space as it happens yeah um the main character in it is named Sarat chestnut mm -hmm. uh she is black i think potentially mixed race mm -hmm. Uh, the has a twin sister and an older brother and then a mother and a father they live the book starts out where they're living kind of in a swampy area and they live in what is referred to as the free southern states so the book kind of front loads you with just a little bit of information and then unpacks it as it goes uh, and what happened was in 2074 there was a bill passed by the federal government which I'm like I can't imagine this ever happening uh, that banned fossil fuels in the entire United States yeah right well, also around the same time, South Carolina uh, became victim of a virus called the slow that turned people like lethargic to the point that they just stopped taking care of themselves and died. So the entire state of North Carolina is now walled off from the rest of the country and like no one goes in, no one comes out. There's troops positioned around it. They describe, I think it's an incident in, North, or in South Carolina where there was a clash between federal troops and then people from the state and then the federal troops opened fire on the people and that just like things it was like a powder keg right uh you have the free southern states which is where surratt chestnut lives and those are made up of mississippi alabama and georgia mm -hmm. uh, texas has been invaded and part of it's been retaken by mexico at this point the ocean levels have risen and sunk most of the western and eastern coasts so the federal capital is now in columbus ohio uh, and there are care packages that are brought every once in a while from the Buzazi Empire, which is a united coalition of Middle Eastern oil-producing countries that are sympathetic to the southern states because the southern states are still clamoring to use fossil fuel. I think the novel doesn't explicitly say it enough to me, but I think the idea is that they banned the fossil fuels, but they didn't have adequate technological replacements for it. Mm -hmm. So it was going to send like millions of people into poverty because they hadn't transitioned off of it. It was like an emergency thing. Uh, and so it's, I thought, first of all, I thought it was very interesting that it presented it as not a binary war. It's not the South versus the North. It is multiple factions and 
people even within regions at war with each other just out of pure survival for resources and a certain thing. And it's something that you and I have talked about, and I think a lot of people have thought about, is what would another American Civil War look like? And I think it's fairly realistic in terms of the way the war is fought, and that it's just this massive mess, and the federal government becomes incredibly draconian and cruel, but that doesn't mean the people they're fighting are saints. Like, they're also pretty bad. And it's just you have a bunch of people in the middle whose lives are just getting churned through like a meat grinder as a result of this. And so Surratt, she starts out, and this they live in, you know, pretty much poverty. Uh, their dad goes off to help a friend and get in contact with someone and to help them get out of this region, and he never comes back, and so the implication is he's dead, right? Uh, and then... Uh, a rebel faction shows up and kind of takes over their home and that's when their mom is just like, we gotta go. Uh, and there's like a big conflict that happens and Surratt's family ends up in a refugee camp on the Mississippi-Tennessee border. Yeah. And that's where the, like the second chunk of the novel takes place. Surratt kind of, it's very much coming of age for her for a lot of the book. She kind of meets someone that's going to be a mentor that kind of mentors her and teaches her some things about how to survive in this new world. Tragedy strikes her family. And then we shift to the next part of the book, which is the uh, free southern states that their government helps her relocate to a suburb of Atlanta. And at this point, her brother has been shot while they were at the refugee camp when there was like this attack on it. And he has permanent brain damage. He has a woman that cares for him because he's an adult at this point, and she's, they're kind of falling in love with each other, which really makes Surratt angry because she wants to basically lock her family down from the outside world at this point, and she sees this woman as like an interloper. Uh, then Surratt gets involved with a more radical fringe element of in the southern states that want to target specific leaders in the federal government. And she ends up in a detention facility in what's the Florida Sea now. It's like a floating prison where Florida used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's lots of things happen. And there's, I never felt really overwhelmed with characters. I think uh, El Akkad does a very good job of keeping the cast under control. So you never feel like, who's this? What's going on? Like, it, he's very clear about who the factions are, who Surratt's dealing with. When she encounters people like in prison or at the refugee camp, he doesn't like spend a bunch of time world building characters that aren't going to play a role in the story. But he does enough to give you a sense of the flavor and the feel of the place. Uh, I won't say in case anybody wants to read it that the identity of the historian who's writing it actually becomes a key part of the plot in the last quarter of the book. Okay. And the last quarter of the book is the best part of the book. And that kind of frustrated me because that was the part where, like, the emotions really hit me pretty hard. And I, that was lacking in the rest of the book. Or at least for me. I don't know if other people read it and they may get a different vibe off of it. But it felt like... But then I also had to wonder, like, but was I feeling the emotions about Surratt in the end of the book because of everything she went through? But everything she was going through, you know, the first three-fourths of the book, I didn't feel much about. And it was kind of a slog to read through. And then you get to this point that's like, she's an adult woman, probably 30s, potentially early 40s. And then that's where like the emotional weight of the book hits. And it felt very imbalanced as a result. Mm -hmm. And there were also aspects of the world building I was still confused about even at the end of the book. 
It it sounds like to me this is like a lesser version of Parables of the Soul. Uh, Parable of the Sower? Yeah, because I've read the the three books. Two very different books. Two very different books. Because Parable of the Sower is Octavia Butler. Yeah. Is centered on this single character the whole time told in a third it's third person but it is from her perspective like we don't know anything like we find her journals yeah. we don't know thing. anything she doesn't know right yeah. is it first person is it written it, 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 you, it, what it is is like you find her journals and there's okay. her, and the person so she, who's like telling you like hey but there's this and time so, but the person who's telling american war doesn't experience any of the things that happen until the last quarter of the book because they're not alive for it mm-hmm. so and then I also think the decision to jump back and forth between this sort of what's meant to be a nonfiction narrative, which is a trend in nonfiction now where they'll take like a, if you read a historical book, it's almost written in a narrative sense rather than like a history textbook. And uh, jumping back and forth between the narrative and then these artifacts, which is a structure I don't necessarily hate did not work for me because some of those nonfiction fake artifacts weren't well written it felt like maybe because you know he's a journalist the author when it came to writing news articles really good but then there were other things that didn't feel like he really understood how to write them mm-hmm. and so it was just kind of okay but it's one of those where like if you it's one of those, I don't know if I would recommend it, but that last fourth is really good, and it had a lot of emotional resonance, and it, you know, it stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a book, there's not a lot of books I can name that I had that experience with, which is why it stuck out to me so much. Okay. What is your next book on your What You've Been Reading list? It was on your top reading list, Catwoman, Lonely City. Oh, okay. Uh, my good friend, Cliff Chang. <laughs> Yeah, he's the mysterious seventh person that listens to He read my review, and he (laughs) left a comment on Instagram for me. So (laughs) we're besties. We're best friends now. I'm sure I'll get a name drop in his next work. Yeah, you know, you'll be be sending each other birthday cards. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So tell me, I mean, I talked about this on our best of the year show. So just kind of share, what are your thoughts about Catwoman Lonely City? I thought it was relatively good. I... I felt at certain points I kind of wish that we had more of Catwoman almost alone or just like what was her thought process versus her just being like yeah we can't do this the way that like you know Batgirl keeps telling us that we have to do it kind uh, of her thing. name is Barbara Gordon she's no longer Batgirl okay I don't care oh <laughs> And I think one of the things that I do have a problem with comics that I feel like they keep doing this a lot. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Is that in order to make the cast more diverse, Mm -hmm. they will make have someone have a child and that child is a mixed child with like a black person. So you're talking about the Riddler's daughter. Yes. Okay. And what was your problem with the Riddler's daughter? I thought... Are you saying that... uh, you can't have interracial marriage in no, comics. No, no, no interracial. Do we need to marriage. cancel you, Ramos? <laughs> no, I think it's just it. 
I've just noticed that a lot in comic books lately, so it's giving giving me kind of like a weird feeling because it's just sort of because you're a racist. No, it's just like this weird thing of being like they're like, oh, we need to make the cast more diverse. Well, I mean, isn't that a good thing? It's a good thing, but it's also sort of like then the mom is is dead. That's true. The mom is not a part of the story. It's just sort of like the mom's dead. I don't even really remember them giving a description of what happened to the mom. She's not there. No, she's just dead. She's just dead. Um, And then like. I think it's also like this this thing is like I'm not really like okay so you know the DC universe better than I do. <laughs> I think that's what we would call an understatement okay, in the business. Okay, so how many different races has Catwoman been? One. Okay, cuz I feel like some one time they made her like biracial of like black and white at some point. Well, I mean, if you're talking outside of the comics, Eartha Kitt played her in no, I mean, like, I don't know in the comments, because in this one, she's half Cuban, half, like, white. I don't, like, I don't follow the Catwoman character in the regular continuity that closely. Yeah. Like, she and Batman's relationship has never been a thing that really appealed to me anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, so I don't know in terms of her identity in the comics, like, yeah. what it is at this point. Yeah, I think it's just, like... It, this... it could, she could very well, they could have... Because, I mean, like, the character when she was introduced had no background, really. So, yeah, so more recently, just, they could have added that. I think it's just for me, I'm like, I don't... I feel very uncomfortable when it's this ever-shifting thing to whatever the author wants to do. In order, again, to be like, let's hit those diversity marks, guys. So, you sound... Okay. It sounds like I have Matt Walsh as a guest <laughs> on my podcast. No, it's... You're like, um, excuse me, the human torch is a white man. No, I'm just... I'm wondering because it's just sort what of... What you're saying is there's... There's two types of diversity that are going on in the United States. There's authentic diversity, and then there's the corporate diversity. I yeah. would argue that this is authentic mm-hmm. because of something I know that you don't, which okay. could okay. fill okay. a library. <laughs> <laughs> wow. About the DC universe. Divorce podcast. About the DC universe. Soon. Why didn't you let me finish? <laughs> um, this is a black label title, which are out of continuity creator focus not that they own them and can take them anywhere else Mm -hmm. but it's stories that the writers don't have to worry about what's happening in the dc universe right now this is why it's set in the future and so it's they're they're slightly more personal yet still using corporate icons yeah and so i would argue based on what i know of cliff chang what, everything presented in this mm-hmm. is an authentic thing that he wanted to do. He was there were no dictates to him. Yeah, he is a Chinese American author. Yeah, and so this is the story he wanted to tell with the characters he wanted to tell, and there were no. He probably got greenlit because DC is making a very big push to diversify both the characters and creators in their works right now. Yeah, so the reason he got to write it and it got published was because he is probably. I mean, he's a great artist. I love his art. Yeah. And I don't know if I've ever read anything written by him uh, until I read Lonely City. Yeah, like, like the art and the story is yeah. great. But I was just asking the, because yeah. I did not know. I would say this is authentic diversity. This is yeah. not some sort of like Warner Discovery going, hey, you got to have this in it because we have to hit these demographics. That's not the way. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm just asking because a lot of times I end up reading comics and I'm just like, I don't like... Unless it's like an original creation, I start having a little bit of questions as to like what is happening. Um, So that's why I end up just asking you on the podcast. Here's a good way to tell you how disassociated the DC Black Label is from Mm -hmm. the comics. One of the first DC Black Label comics, 
uh, with a Batman comic in which they forgot to do the shadowing enough, and so you saw Batman's dick in it. (laughs) (laughs) My question was, why did the artist feel the need to draw the whole dick? Yeah. And, like, it got printed, and it got sent out to stores. (laughs) And people were like, that's Batman's fucking dick, man. (laughs) Was it, like, proportionally right or something? Yeah, it seemed like... I mean... I haven't gone around looking a lot of dicks in my life, other than the one that I have, I guess. But it seems fine to me. Like, okay. but like, I apologize to your sister right now when she hears this. Uh, I mean, do people think I didn't have a dick? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but like, uh, it's they're very like some of the best stuff I've read lately has been DC Black Label. Mm-hmm. And it's just because the the continuity of the regular stuff is just so like yeah it seems like all burdensome. Over the place. It's just awful at this point. Um, there because right now it's the dawn of the DCU, and they're like, re- and I'm like, we don't need another reboot. Just tell good stories. That's all I like want. Like an to do. update every few years. Exactly. Like, yeah. It's okay. just, and Marvel does the same thing where they cancel everything and they start over with number ones, and yeah, it's insane. Okay. But did you like Lonely? No, Sims? I did. I just I I almost wish that there was more of like Catwoman's thought process. But again, it, it is a comic book. When well, so they're they're of, always limited series. Yeah. And because they're like printed on like higher quality paper and so it's more of a prestige thing and then i think they're also like larger than a regular comic so mm-hmm. it's like the art is always really yeah, like a big the focus art is of really good and i did like the fact that like a lot of times catwoman is like i should not be fucking doing this she's old because like, uh... she's older and like she has to get specialized shoes specialized stuff for her knees like she and all of her friends are sort of like you are really damaging your body in order to do this and like I almost wish that there was a little bit of like her talking about why it was that she wanted to do this, but I do like when she. Well, I mean, it is. She's Bruce. That's why she's doing it. She's Bruce. No, it's because Bruce died. Okay, That's but no, I understood it. that. But I I liked the fact that when she was like dealing with, for example, Barbara, she's sort of like. That's great that you want to do it this way, but that's not how it's going to work. Like it's. Like she's like I've seen the worst and the, uh, the worst, and I get it. You have the best intentions, but those best intentions aren't going to get us anywhere. Um, but have like, you read The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller? I don't think so. Okay, because that's for me. This was like a count, a sort of a hopeful counterpoint to that, mm-hmm. which that is you know Frank Miller and very reactionary and like misanthropic and i hate humanity yeah and this is like no 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 humanity's good there's bad people but we have to fight them we have to get rid of them kind yeah of thing. and it's also like the so-called bad people aren't really the bad people after yeah. all they just there were circumstances that they were thrown into and that they have their own community mm-hmm. and that they're willing to take care of each other all right, well my next book so far you've been miss negative every you just hate everything <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, now this book I, I read this, and I was like, have I already read my favorite book of 2023? Wow, that's high praises. It's very good. And the reason I read it is because it's being adapted into a movie. And it's also by an author that I keep hearing about. People have joked, oh, she's TikTok's favorite author. And I'm like, nah, I'm not going to say it. I think there's a lot of books that TikTok tells you about over and over and over again. <laughs> that I'm like, I get to the point where I'm like, could I please have you recommended something else? Is there other books you've read? Or, but, like, even older books. And so this book had never been recommended. 
uh, to me, but the author's name had come up. And then I saw that there was a film adaptation of this book that just premiered at Sundance. It is being directed by Will, William Oldroy. And we talked about it on the the, the films that were most anticipated. Yeah. Right? And so it's Eileen by Otessa Mosfeg, who I read, I think she's Iranian-American mm-hmm. is her background. Because I wondered that name stuck out to me as like, what's that background? So probably Persian, I'm guessing. Uh, the novel is set in like the early mid-60s and it's all told from the perspective of the main character, Eileen, who is 25 years old. Her mother died of cancer a few years prior. Eileen lives with her dad, who's a retired cop and just an abusive, angry, drunk man. He's not necessarily physically abusive, but certainly like verbally and emotionally, like nonstop. And he, if he gets out of the house, he'll often be brought back by police in the neighborhood. She puts his shoes in the trunk of her car so he can't leave the house during the winter. Um, the, a cop comes by at one point and tells her that she needs he needs to hand his gun over to her because it was reported he was standing on the porch and his kids were coming home from school. He was waving his gun in the air mm-hmm. and he's become obsessed that there's like hoodlums like just outside the house waiting to like ambush them. Yeah. So the guy is like horrible, horrible to her as well, constantly like mocking her appearance, telling her what a disappointment she is. She has an older sister who's married and does not live in the same town and barely ever comes to visit who he loves. Right. Yeah, right. the one that he can't yeah. see. So Eileen works at a juvenile detention center for boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she works in a, like an administrative capacity. So she has like a desk. One of the things that she does most often that she talks about is when parents, and it's always mothers, that's when fathers never come to visit, right? Yeah. Either because the fathers aren't in the kid's life or the fathers are like, I'm not, I'm going to punish them by not going to see them. Nonsense. Uh, And so the mothers will come to visit with the boys, and they're only allowed to do one visit at a time. So you have mothers that are waiting there for hours for their visit. Like, it's the very, I mean, it's the way the real prison system system, is. It's cruel. Um, And, like, Eileen is a bizarre character. It reminded me a lot of Daryl by Jackie S., which is another book that has very strong character voice. Where, like, from page one, you're in. Because you're like... I, this character is so fascinating to me and so strange and has such specific opinions and likes and dislikes that I want to see where this goes with them. I want to spend time with them, even though it's not always enjoyable to spend time with them. Yeah. Uh, So, like, Eileen will make up fake surveys and give the mothers to say, oh, the state wants you to fill these out. But they're just full of questions that have nothing to do with anything about, like, what's your preferred cereal of choice for breakfast? Like, these things that she just has them fill out and then throws them away. I think that sounds like she's just trying to keep them busy so they're not on her. No, (laughs) there's, like, there's something sadistic about Eileen that I think comes out of her father. Like, it's sort of the, the paying it forward in a bad sense. Okay. And... She talks about her own body almost constantly and is obsessed with, like, her grotesqueness. And she's, like, a 25-year-old woman, and you're thinking, like, oh, you know, young women are usually seen as, you know, very attractive, right? You know, mm-hmm. we're thinking in a very, like, primal sense. Oh, you know, fertility, right? You're mm-hmm. the perfect childbearing age or whatever. 
she constantly talks about her small breasts, how they're almost non-existent. Uh, she does things to herself so that she will keep herself from having bowel movements until the very last moment and then collapse in pain on the bathroom floor. Like, and I'm saying that and you're just like, what the fuck is this about? <laughs> but she is so fascinating as a character. She is obsessed with one of the male guards who's close to her age. And every weekend will drive her car to his neighborhood and sit across the street from his house for hours and never go up to him, never talk to him. And, like, think about what is he doing in there? What is he doing? <laughs> okay. And then, like, we'll get jealous when just women at work who are, like, old women that work there talk to him. Yeah. Uh, but she's has no interest in ever pursuing anything with him. She likes a fantasy. Yeah, she's, like, she lives in her head 24-7. Because all the people who know her don't know any of these things about her. Okay. She has this, like, insane inner life. And she keeps, she's telling us this story from the present day. So I think the book came out like in 2017-ish, mm -hmm. 2014, I'm not sure, somewhere in there, the 20-teens. And she is reflecting on this time, and we know a few things early on in the book. These aren't even spoilers. Yeah. She's going to leave town and not tell anyone she's leaving, and they will never know what happens to her. Okay. And she's planning this in her head over and over. And there's points where she's like about to do it, but then she chickens out. She convinces herself there's a reason she has to stay for whatever reason. Yeah. She also lets us know there's a woman that's going to work in that prison upcoming in the story. And when she meets that woman, that is going to be an event that changes the trajectory of her life and leads her to leaving forever and never telling anybody. Okay. And so this is all kind of laid out early on. And it's clear that Ms. Fegg is trying. This is the hook to keep you reading. You're like, mm -hmm. where? And it's not until I'd say maybe the last third of the book that the woman this new employee at the prison even shows up. But, and so you keep feeling like, am I just being baited? What's going on? When she shows up and when certain things start to happen and then when the finale takes place, which takes place on Christmas. Okay. The eve, I, think, I'm not, I think it's Christmas evening, not Christmas Eve. Okay. And the, this new employee at the prison who has befriended Eileen invites her over and things are just off from like minute one that like something weird is going on and something weird is going on okay. and Eileen gets involved with what's going on and it's fucked up but and it had me really thinking like I love the book first like I said you know yeah. already I'm like this is this is going to be on my best of the year list I yeah. can't imagine there being you know 10 books that knock this down that are this good and it also has me very interested to read more Otessa Mosfeg, uh -huh. uh, despite the sort of this sort of turn by the internet of like, oh, she's overhyped. Uh, this is a fucking great novel. The yeah. woman knows how to write character, right? Mm -hmm. It you this is a fully realized human being who is as complex and complex and fucked up as I think a lot of people are. Yeah, but highly recommend Eileen. Well, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about two more of our books. And then after that, it's Mithrigan time, bitches. And we're back. We are have been talking about what we've been reading, which we're going to be finishing up. And then for our final segment of the show will be our review of the recent 
horror movie? And that is a question mark at the end. <laughs> Mithrigan. Uh, so, Ariana, what's the last book that you wanted to talk about today and what you've been reading? Um, Hopefully this is one you're going to recommend enthusiastically. I, I this, this, yes. Okay, um, the Underground Rail- Railroad. Oh, okay. I have not read the book, but we've both seen the Amazon miniseries by Barry Jenkins. Yeah, and I think after reading this book, I feel like he was the perfect director for this. And who's that written by? It is written by Colson Whitehead. I've only ever read one book by him. And it was very short. Um, I think that this was a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. Um, you already saw the series, so what was nice about the series is that we had a protagonist that wasn't like this strong, like former slave that could that, like gets her freedom. It's not. As it wasn't she... like that recent Harriet Tubman movie where she's like a Marvel superhero. Or I understood why they did that, but this is just. She's a real person. She's a real person. She's scared. She doesn't know what she's doing. A lot of times, it's like. She doesn't realize like the things that maybe it is that she deserves, but she's also very hesitant when it comes to white people at the end, and she's hesitant about religion. She doesn't trust religion because she views it as a way that it was used against like slaves in order to make sure that they became like docile underneath the hands of their masters, and. This book is also one of the few, I feel like one of the few books where even when like there was a promise, um, like Caesar, the person that she runs away with, uh, he happened to have been born underneath like a mistress that was, that let him like learn how to read and was kinder. But the problem was, was when she died, even though she promised their freedom, him and his parents like she had like a niece that came in and like sold them. And so it's the harsh realities of also what happens to people who happen to be like the freedom writers that dedicate themselves to this work. And so the white, uh, any white people that were aligned with the Underground Railroad, like had the possibility of dying. But this is also like a magic realist fantasy. It's a magic. So he does tie the history very well, but it's the idea that it wasn't just. It's, it's like he took the idea of what children must have thought of the first time they heard about it. Because when you this, hear the Underground Railroad, as a kid, a, you think he, like it's a train that goes underground? Yeah, and so he plays with that, with the idea that the train is running underground. But it is, I always love that whenever they do go underground, she or someone else will ask, well, who built it? And they'll be like, who do you think built it? The slaves. Yeah. And it's like it was the slaves. And I also love that like, so in the... In the series, we do see the train being, like, a fantastical, amazing thing that has all these beautiful seats. But the thing is, like, in the uh, in the, in the the novel, that doesn't happen towards the end. Okay. Like, she doesn't reach that type of, like, train until she's closer to the freedom that she's supposed to, uh, to get to. So it works as kind of that metaphor of things are becoming more beautiful as we're getting further away from the suffering kind yes. of a thing. Yeah. And so... Um, it was just so like it was painful at times um it was hard to read at times but it's one of those times that like this is the type of book that unfortunately i feel that the united states would ban people from reading in like high school or something yeah high schoolers 
Um, because again, I will mention one of my favorite authors, Octavia E. Butler. She uh, wrote a fictional novel that's supposed to be like a black woman who is time travels. Kindred? Yeah, Kindred. Which I've not read. I um, that is also very brutal. That's also, I think, is I don't know if it's becoming a movie or a series. It's a series on FX, but there's certain books and authors that I really like that when I hear there's something being adapted by their work, I'm kind of like, I'll wait till the first season's over and then just see what people are kind of saying about it. It's also sort of like with Kindred, it has to be just one or two seasons and that's it. And see, that's the problem. They're going to drag stuff out. And with FX, it's really hard to know if they're going to drag it out or not. If it was like an HBO thing or if it was like a prime thing they would not even like, prime i'm like even, yeah. lord of the rings they're dragging oh, that the shit out so bad. um but... the rings of power <sighs> <laughs> well apparently they got a new showrunner for the second season because yeah. and they're like oh it's gonna move a lot faster with the mormons gone <laughs> yeah uh, uh, um, but yeah it's uh what is colson whitehead's writing style because the book that i read was a lot it wasn't necessarily a work of fiction. It was almost more like a meditative, like, experimental thing. So I haven't really read any of his, you know, novels. How would you just talk about his writing style? The way he writes characters, the way, the way he writes dialogue, the sort of framing of scenes, the... So it is from her, like, uh, the main characters... Um vision most of the time there's a few times that you will shift characters but it is and so is it first person or like cora like cora who's the main character is mostly like first person what she's going through actually take that back it's more like a third uh, but still from her perspective her perspective so it's from her perspective and she is not an optimistic type of character which is in the the miniseries does very similar she's very she's just very much like she pragmatic yeah she doesn't understand why caesar is picking her to be uh to go away she is deeply angry with her mother that supposedly ran away and it is that anger that she has inside of her of just being like the moment that she runs away all she can think about is the fact that this is the furthest that she's ever been outside of the plantation and how that's so bizarre to her and that she needs to like take in the fact that like this freedom she needs to hold it tight within her chest but then the moment that they get to North Carolina and things are starting to go better and that she almost gets caught again and she's like forced back into into running she is like upset with herself with the idea of her thinking why the fuck did i think that i could trust white people to begin with and it was like the white people that were like teaching her how to read but then also going like hey cora you need to go convince a bunch of other uh, women here that they need to like get the surgery that will help them which is basically like sterilizing these women i think it was south carolina South because in north carolina they made it illegal so they just wouldn't even allow black people in yeah so like in uh, south carolina like it's supposed to be like they're trying to uh like well, they're basically them. civilizing them civilizing and then also them. sterilizing them like you're and saying that, like but within uh, within the miniseries, we don't have what we have in the book where Cora is working in a museum that's supposed to represent how uh, African American, like African slaves, came to the states, and how she is like 
almost re-traumatized because she has to pretend to be on the plantation. I think there was briefly briefly, in the miniseries. Her anger is sort of like, we weren't allowed to sit. What do you think we're allowed to sit? We so it's that seeing, whitewashing of yeah, slavery. Yeah, sort of yeah. like and like how she had worked with a white family and how she enjoyed the work, but they were saying, "No, you're perfect for this job." And like when she finally goes to um, Indiana, and there is a shift between like the series and I the book. Figured there was probably a lot that got left out just because of time. And it's, it was left out because of time, but I thought it was very interesting that there are stories of like. Uh, mostly men who happen to be like mixed who could pass as white going in and being like uh, like the guy that owns the in the Indiana farm happened to like he bought his wife right mm-hmm. and how like because he's white passing he's white passing and then he was just sort of like he lived with her in a state for a little bit that's like and how a lot of people are like why is he having children with her like oh like is, is he like they were basically telling him like you should sell your children and so he goes and, like, starts a farm, and then it's supposed to be, like, all, like, how there's, like, a one former slave that he's sort of like, well, we need to, like, stop bringing in all these people who ran away. Because he bought his freedom, he bought his wife's freedom, and he bought his children's freedom. And how he's, like, sort of, like, done with all of this. And then we have Ridgeway, who's, like, the slave catcher, who in the, in the series, he has Homer that little like black slave that mm-hmm. he has we don't get homer until like almost like halfway through the book very fascinating character in the mini series but like it i feel like they did such a good idea of bringing him from the beginning so you're not kind of like confused as to where the fuck did this kid come from well, and also it introduces like an odd element in the yeah. mini series like early on where you're like why does this like white slave catcher have a little black boy in a suit following him every yeah day. and it's supposed to be like this butcher was selling the kid off because he's like i don't i i'm like falling on hard times ridgeway like buys him and then tells the kid you're free do whatever but the kid is sort and ridgeway excuses it being like but the kid knows he's gonna fucking die if he doesn't follow me. Which I felt like from going... the miniseries, it's basically he has a slave mindset, so he's so indoctrinated yeah, like that he, he can't he get a... He can't fall asleep without the shackles around his yep. like, his I remember wrist. that from the show. And it is like dark and emotional. It is hopeful at times, but with within that hope, it is also sort of like, so the rest of our life is going to be a struggle. So no matter what we say to each other, it's going to be a struggle about how like how she falls in love with a man who has had his freedom but works with the railroad and how he explains to her like free men walk differently than formerly enslaved men. Like there's a different attitude about them that white people will leave them alone, but that doesn't mean that they're not captured at some point to become yeah. slaves. It is... Well, I think that's something that I know the show really felt like it got that across, and it sounds like the book does too. The uh, effervescence, uh, not effervescence, but the sort of, oh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? It's just the idea of in how, oh man, why can't I think of the right words? <laughs> the one of those where you're like, it's on the tip of my tongue, and that's where you go, well, if it's on the tip of your tongue, say it, right? <laughs> <laughs> We got it from John Early. But it's the idea that, like, the impermanence of freedom. Yes. Where it's that you have this taste of this thing, and then it just gets torn away from you. So I could see for a lot of slaves in actual history, 
not even trying to pursue it because the idea of feeling that just the sinking horror of having it taking away it would just be better to live as a slave and die because you just wouldn't know anything else and for a lot of slaves they never did they never this is what they understood the world to be was this is what people like them did and then white people were the ones with the power and they never lived to see anything different than that yeah and, and how like horrific that is and how Cora just struggles with the idea that she has left people in the plantation that, like, her best friend has probably been killed or severely tortured because her best friend tried to leave with her. Yeah. And then it's also the the struggles that she has when she talks. Like, she's thinking about, like, other, like, slaves who basically became, like, the right-hand person for the white... Um, white masters and that treated mistreated the slaves because they were getting better treatment and then the other remarks... way they get black people to buy in on the yeah, mistreatment so of each like, other yeah she talks about like that particular sensation of like the women who were like forced to live in one house that they would call the hob house because like they were broken women there were women that were either used by the masters or like the guys that were like taking in charge like sexually abused and no longer were in favored about how like the other slaves when they wanted something from like the fem uh, female slaves would be like well if it isn't you it's gonna be your kid and how old is, are the is she now oh god and it is horrific at but it's times, accurate <laughs> but it's accurate and it's necessary and it is not without hope and it's one like again these are the type of books that when i'm just like I, when you're reading a book that's like a mainly a white passing or a white person, you're just kind of like, I can't get this intensity from a white author. I can't yeah. get this, like, there's this tiny crack of hope. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of light that shines through all this darkness. And it feels like it's only authors like that that I feel like it's so intense that you almost have to like after reading the book you're like okay i need to go read something lighter but it's just it's clung to your sides you can't stop thinking about it when see you're i don't i'm like double down double down on the dark <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it's just to me i'm like it's so well written that it doesn't feel that to me i'm like oh that cora was an imaginary person cora felt real within mm -hmm. her struggle and especially because well, because of the things that she went through, other than, of course, you know, the literal Underground Railroad, slaves really did go through. These are yeah, based on real how, stories. Like, she talks about the fact that she knows that, like, she will not ever be completely over this. And how, like, it's also the fact that even the people that are around her that happen to be black or are mixed talk about the fact that, like, oh, well, these these former slaves are still within that mindset. So they're heavy on the drinking. They're heavy on the abuse. And it's like, of course they are. Of course they are. And I like the fact that he touched upon it versus this weird, like, positivity-like spin that people love to do. Well, people like to sanitize it because they're like, oh, well, that's just too harsh to talk about. But the thing is, you have to because it happened and it was real. And yeah. we, if we don't really confront, and it doesn't mean you have to spend every day 24-7 reading gruesome details of what slavery was like, but at some point you need to sit down and do that. But it's also just one of those, like, the reason that, like, I like reading this type of people, it, like, these type of authors. These people. 
God, you really are Matt Walsh today. (laughs) Authors that show these type of stories and don't sanitize it and don't make it easy for us to consume. It's they're confronting with the reality and they're almost telling you like this is in my head and this is my thought process about this and I need you to go through it with me and understand that in order for us to have a better future you have to understand our past and that's why I really gravitated towards like Octavia E. Butler is one of my like when I keep saying she's one of my favorite authors it's just sort of like she would tell people I'm not a pessimist I'm a ha- but I do see how things are going. She's honest about the state of things. And I'm going to be honest about it. And I'd rather have the honesty 110% versus, let, yeah, yeah, I'll give you some well, diversity. Well, because you know who the opposite of that is. What? Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. He is this sort of delusional idealist that just presents a false narrative of American history and doesn't tackle the ugliness of it, right? Well, that's easy for him to do because he's a, his struggles haven't been as, like... Hey, hey, he had, he had a cocaine addiction. Yeah, and he's he's good now, huh, yeah. bro? It seems like that <laughs> cocaine addiction got you somewhere. Well, I mean, he wrote a lot. Um, so my last selection is a short story anthology. Uh, the It was the 2022 Best Horror of the Year collection, edited by Ellen Datlow who, if you don't read a lot of horror fiction, then most people probably don't know who Ellen Datlow is because she's not an author, but she is an editor. But she showcases the importance of a really good editor because she has edited... Every year she edits the Best Horror of the Year anthology and in addition will edit multiple themed anthologies. She'll do... There's certain ones that that I haven't read, like she does like dark fantasy stuff, and that's not really my thing, but it's there, and she edits it, and I think people really like it. And then she does a lot of horror. Uh, And so I always love picking up a best horror of the year. I don't pick them up every year. I need to do that because you'll either find new stories from familiar names or you'll discover names you've never heard of before and read some story, and you're like, well, I got to find this person. I got to track them down. I do love when you do uh, read some of the the best stuff because... Then you start stalking certain uh, writers, and you're like, come on, come on, come on. Well, I mean, we are going to talk about my favorite horror writer, Laird Barron, who it went to the hospital. He is ill, like really badly ill with something. I can't remember what it was, but there was sort of a, a an all call on the internet for people to help donate to his hospital fund, which is sad because I'm like, I, he's in his 50s? Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want him to die. He has too many stories left to write for me. <laughs> <laughs> And also, I mean, I'm sure he has a family that loves him and everything. Uh, But we'll talk about him in just a minute. Uh, So I picked three stories from this collection. Uh, And one of the cool things about the best uh, horror of the year anthologies is Datlow always has a really lengthy opening where she goes through and lists every horror novel, novella, short story collection, anthology that was published that year Mm -hmm. and gives a few sentences about what she thought, and for the things she really likes, she might do, you know, a half paragraph or something. And so it also gives you a great overview of what was the year 2022 like for horror literature, and what's out there, and maybe what's something I haven't heard of that went under my radar. Uh, But then when you get to, like, the meat of it are the stories. So the first story I want to talk about is Caker's Man by Matthew Holness. And so people might think that name is familiar. That is one Garth Marenghi from Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Oh, yeah. 
who uh, he wrote and directed the film Possum that we saw that was really disturbing yeah, about like was, childhood abuse and yeah. how that follows you into adulthood. And then he recently put out a Dark Place horror anthology written in the voice of Garth Marenghi that's more tongue-in-cheek horror from what I've heard. Yeah. And is doing public readings in the UK. Yeah, I heard and, that people, yeah. even though people are like, this is tongue-in-cheek, he's still a fucking good yep. writer. <laughs> and Caker's Man, for me, is a great example of shit. I need a like serious collection of horror by this guy. It is. It was one of the most unsettling horror stories I've read in a long time that just... And the thing that I loved about it, and it's the thing that I that always wins me over with a horror story, is they there's enough seeds to come up with your theories about what happened, but it never explicitly tells you. And you're left just kind of, huh. It's also from the perspective of an adult who was a child at the time, and so they're remembering it as a child, which means... It might be in fragments, it's nonlinear, it's trying to make sense of the sort of chaos of childhood memory. And the premise is, uh, it's a boy, he's the oldest in his family, there's two other siblings, and his mom is single. Dad abandoned the family at some point. Across the street is this creepy as fuck old man that lives there, who I think, he hasn't lived there forever, he's moved in. And like, his wife dies, and the mom hears about it and so she has the kid she's like you know what as good neighbors we need to go across the street and you know give him our condolences you know just to be nice which is the wrong thing to do in this instance because <laughs> this guy is creepy as fuck like one of the things this and like the little boy who's narrating it describes the way the man looks so perfectly like wholeness nails it because he refers to those sort of i'm gonna say like victorian or maybe edwardian political cartoons if you think of like the original illustrations for uh, Alice in Wonderland and the way like the Duchess and the the uh, Queen of Hearts are drawn, where they have like oversized heads and they just kind of look grotesque. That's the way he describes this guy. So immediately, if you're a kid who's familiar, or, I mean, you're not a kid, you're an adult reading it. Hopefully you're not a child. Um, <laughs> if you're an adult reading this who, you know, saw those images as a kid and was like, oh, those are pretty creepy. Like already you're unsettled. Like, the dude is very, like, sexually suggestive towards their mother in front of the kids, but not explicit, where he talks about, like, oh, he's going to have to throw away his wife's clothes, and, oh, would, would you, to the mother, he's like, would you like to come over some afternoon, and you can try them on for me, and take the ones that you'd like to keep, and, like, the mom is just sort of, we gotta get out of here as quickly (laughs) as possible, and the reason that he's the caker's man is he talks about, like, having been a baker, and, like, platters of cake start showing up on the front step of their house and he's like being really creepy trying to like impose himself into their lives and then weird supernatural shit starts happening that has no logical explanation and the horror just increases and increases and increases and it reaches this crescendo where like no one dies but everyone is kind of left fucked up and confused and haunted with and never get answers about what it was that happened with this guy and who this guy was and what was going on. Just so well done. Uh, the next story I want to talk about, I'm only going to talk about three. And there, I think there's like 20 in the book. Yeah. Uh, Dancing Sober in the Dust by Steve Tose, who when I saw his name, I was like, oh, I know that name. And I realized I've read other stories by him. And uh, I want to say that he wrote a story... I, oh, I'm going to fuck up the title. But it's something like Eyes Donation Clinic. 
that is one of my favorite contemporary horror stories I have ever read uh, that was in one of these collections. And it was just about a guy who goes to visit like an old friend and the vibes are just off immediately. So that's a different story than this one. But that's really good. But uh, Dancing Sober in the Dark is about a, a guy who is apparently, I think he's sort of like a music graduate student. So he's like studying music because he's visiting this museum of music where they have like all kinds of artifacts on display but also a lot of warehoused things and so he's getting into the warehoused collection because he's looking for something very specific which are a set of costumes that were worn over the course of many performances of this piece of music by a husband and wife couple and the thing that sticks out about the costumes is they're incredibly grotesque and they're often made out of found materials and even worse is they get increasingly more sadistic to the husband who was wearing the costumes during the performances. Like at one point, there's a mask with just pure razor blades on the inside of it. Oh my God. Then he like, and then he'll like read descriptions of the performance and the audience reaction to what they were seeing. And I, the couple ends up being like shot to death by the police because of something like horrific that happens. But there's this one lost costume mm-hmm. that is not in the collection and nobody knows where it is. And you get, you realize early on that this guy's not supposed to be going through these costumes. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he gets caught going through them. And then also eventually you realize he's insane. And the, missing costume shows up i'm not going to say how it shows up but it does and it results in this horribly grotesque finale uh toast i saw some people comparing him to uh clive barker and i think that's a perfect comparison in that there, it's a sort of elegant psychosexual kind of horror mm-hmm. where it's about sort of self-mutilation and sadism and art because this is talking about you know music and performance and I think Barker touches on a lot of these same themes. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels very queer as well, because it just feels like there's something about this that doesn't feel, you know, heteronormative. This feels like yeah. people who are on the fringe of society who are very transgressive. And it's just the way it's written is it intercuts between, you know, his first person description of what's going on and then the uh, little, like, pamphlets that are stored with each costume that kind of describe its materials, uh, the date of the performance, and then details about what's known about the performance when it happened. And so that's a structure I really kind of like because it, I feel it's very immersive mm-hmm. because it gives you something that's in the reality of the story that's an artifact, and it helps you kind of invest in it. And then the last story I'll talk about from it, and there's really good ones in here that I'm just not going to be able to get to. Yeah. Uh, is Tiptoe by Laird Barron, which was a completely new story to me. He's supposed to have a new collection coming out this year, which is one of the reasons I'm sad is I don't know if he had completed it because I'm sure he's involved in the editing process. And if he is very ill, I could see it being delayed. If it has to be, it has to be. I just don't want the man to die (laughs) because I'm like... You have more to give me, Laird. I need you to keep writing stories. And he has a family. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they probably want to. Uh, so Tiptoe is just, it's everything I love about Laird Barron in that it's its told from the perspective of someone who is remembering. So it's very Lovecraftian in that way, where it's the victim of the horror is reflecting on what led to this point. But not like the Lovecraft way of like, oh, and I've gone insane. 
where it's still someone who has bearings on reality, but they are so unsettled that you're not sure where do they go from here. They've they've come to a realization about something that's very dark, and they don't know what to do. So the t- tiptoe in the title comes from a game that the narrator's father would play, which was this very weird predatory game. He didn't, like, nobody was, like, harmed by it, but the narrator and then you as the reader reading, you're like, that's kind of weird. Like, why would he encourage that? And apparently it comes from, they're, like, watching a show or have a discussion about praying mantises and the way they, like, stalk their prey. And so the dad would play tiptoe, where he would sneak up on someone in the family, and it was like usually the mom, sometimes the kids, and just give them this really awful pinch on the back, and they didn't know it was coming. But the kids, when they're kids, are like, oh, it's fun, because it's like, it's that, you know, the way people like to play that kind of chase-type game, right? Mm -hmm. So then the kids would start doing it to each other or try to do it to their dad or whatever. It's clear mom doesn't like it, but she's like, whatever. Then there is this big group trip of their family and some other families that are friends of theirs to a lake cabin where some stuff happens that's weird. And because the narrator was a kid when it happened, the full reality is obscured to them of what exactly is going on. And then eventually uh, the oldest brother in the family uh, is drafted into the Vietnam War because it's the time period it kind of takes place in. And when the brother comes back from the war, something has happened to him that is linked to their father, that the brother has been changed to the worse because of what he did in Vietnam, and it's linked to the game the father played in some way. Yeah. Uh, and then there, there was a... Uh, and the, the writing that Baron does, he's just such a... He's, he's a writer that I love, but he's also a writer where, like, when I try to write, I'm chasing... It's one of the things you kind of have to teach yourself is, yes, you can admire someone's writing, but you don't have to chase that because that is at such a high level and you're still in a learning process. You can aspire to it, but don't like beat yourself up because you don't get there. Because this is like just a beautiful piece of writing uh, from the story. Trouble is old weathered picture. Oh, trouble is old weathered pictures, ambiguous. You can't tell what's hiding behind the patina. Nothing or the worst thing imaginable. And this is what the narrator's talking about, going through old photos. And how as we go through old photos, as adults, we begin to piece together the things we didn't understand as children about what was going on. The final paragraph of this story is fucking terrifying. It is horrific. The central character is looking at an old photo and sees something in the background that he has missed his entire life. And it is his father. And his father is dead now, so there's no way he'll ever know what was going on. But it tells him something about his father that was so horrific and disturbing and alien, possibly, And that's just where the story kind of ends, because you, I mean, that's where a story like this ends. The narrator can't, you can't go forward when something like this happens to you. When you have this realization about who this person was, and how monstrous they were, and it's sort of, yeah, you're going to be frozen in that moment, probably for the rest of your life, that's what I would assume. Uh, And it's just so good. It's the last story of the collection, and it, that's the thing with Ellen Datlow, is She's like that friend that knows how to make the perfect uh, mixtape. 
She knows how to structure her anthologies in that she's going to hit you with a banger right out of the gate where you're like, I'm in. What a great story. She's going to save the best for last. She's going to keep sprinkling really powerful things in. She's going to throw things your way that maybe she doesn't even think is the best thing ever. But she's like, you know what? There's an interesting idea in there, and I want you to, I want you to read this, and I want you to think about it. And I, want you, I want to see if you find the thing I found in this story. And then it's so intentional that Laird Barron went last because she knew th- how good this story was and that she wanted the readers, when they closed this book, to just be in stunned, to not be able to read anything else, to not be able to do anything for a little bit because of how this collection is capped off. So I'd say if you're someone who has like a passing interest in horror, you're wanting to know more about the genre, you don't really know where to start with like authors, best horror of the year collections. I think this is maybe like the 22nd one. I don't I always forget the numbers. I just remember the years. Um but just exceptional books. And every year it's it's just like opening a present and you've got all these fun things to kind of go through. Okay. Well, those were our um what we've been reading, the things we wanted to talk about. We're going to take a very short break and when we come back, it's time to talk about Mithrigan. And we are back. And to wrap up our show today, we will be talking about... I keep saying Mithrigan. That's Megan. But that's the that's sort of the meme. But it's also very confusing because this is the first movie, but it has the number three in the title. Yeah. And I think there is an explanation in the movie where it's like, I think Mark three Third generation three. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that. Um, so, Megan, for those of you that haven't heard of this movie... Uh, I believe it was produced by James Wan. He did not direct it, but they were really using. Um, uh, in what was that horribly insane movie we watched last year? Oh, what was it? The name I'm, of I'm that's look it up. so bad that I can't remember. Because I want to say notorious. It's one of those kinds of movies. Malignant, yeah, right? malignant, which was incredible. That was yeah, that was an insane movie. Yeah, but it was a movie where. I think he wanted it to be horrific and stylized, and it was perceived by the audience as comedic, as campy. Yeah. And I don't necessarily know if he intended it to be as campy as we took it. Uh, yeah. I think I think audiences turned it into a comedy, and it wasn't meant to be a comedy. It was necessary for it to be. But there's a no way you could watch that movie <laughs> and not go, "This is a comedy." So then, I feel like now with Megan, they were trying to be intentional about it and we're going to kind of talk about what that does to the movie as a result uh it megan is a marvel of artificial intelligence a lifelike doll that's programmed to be a child's greatest companion Uh, she's designed by Gemma, played by nepo baby allison williams a brilliant roboticist uh megan can listen watch and learn as it plays the role of friend and teacher playmate and protector when Gemma becomes the unexpected caretaker of her eight-year-old niece which they're trying to pass off violet mcgraw as eight years old in this movie she looks 12 i think she is 12 in her life that's one thing in movies where as having been an elementary school teacher who taught eight and nine-year-olds for like the majority of the 10 years i taught when you watch movies and they go he's only eight and i'm like that kid's in fucking middle school what are you talking (laughs) about uh so when Gemma becomes the unexpected caretaker of her eight-year-old niece she decides to give the girl 
uh, a Megan prototype, a decision that leads to unimaginable consequences. Uh, the first trailer to this movie was met with lots of squeals of excitement because they were selling this as camp from day one. Oh yeah, they were, and they it sort of were. it sort of became a thing among I I want to say probably white male gay people. Yeah. Sort of like yassifying Megan and like she's a queer icon. I did see someone saying that, you know, hey, Chucky had to work to become a queer icon. Megan just walks in and takes <laughs> it kind of a thing. Uh, so what were just your initial thoughts after watching Megan? Did Was it a movie that you enjoyed? Or is it a movie that it was a struggle to get through? How did you feel about it? This is going to be a forgettable movie for me. Oh, yeah. I think within maybe two months, you're going to have to bring up that movie. And I'm going to go like, huh? And then I'll you're going like, to hey, remember like, Megan? And you'll be like, what? Uh? <laughs> the movie about the robot. Huh? <laughs> and then you're going to have to be like, you know that scene where she dances or everybody made a meme that only occurs once the entire time. And um, Oh, there's plenty of memeable moments. But the thing movie. is, like, I think it's more like it's... It's more of a gif moment, that part. And the other stuff that could be sort of meme you have you need audio because uh, Megan does burst into songs. Oh, randomly. we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about songs. <laughs> uh, yeah. I thought this is a movie that's trying very hard to go viral. Yeah. And in that way, it made me dislike it because it was trying. Malignant, I don't think, was made... With James Wan and go, oh wow, this movie is going to be really viral. It's going to take off. He's just this weird dude who d- makes weird horror movies. Yeah, I felt like with Malignant, it was like a recall to uh, the 1990s and early aughts when it came to like these thriller films that yes. like were just really fucking weird, especially with the underground stuff that they have. And was it based in Seattle? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, which is like, I think, I don't know if that's a real thing that there's like an underground city in Do Seattle. Do we know where Megan was set? Somewhere on like California, Silicon Valley, yeah, San Francisco? it was kind of like middle of nowhere, however, like very I think it was important. like maybe, I think it might have been like Silicon Valley, yeah. So, um... Allison Williams, which funny enough, like we talked about, about girls, girls yeah. and how weirdly enough on the short clips of girls, she is genuinely acting and you could feel like, oh, this is a real character. She Versus was here dead weight in this movie. Just, I don't know if maybe they were telling her like, hey, you got to play it up like a, like a techno person. Well, the way her lines are delivered in this movie are like, hey... I'm trying to be the best parent I can for you, Katie. But it's, like, and you're just like, I don't feel like this is your niece. Your, I think it was her sister, right? Yeah. Your sister and your brother-in-law are dead. You're now the guardian of this girl that you're. You never really plan on being a parent. Where's the emotion in this scene? There's like no moment of like Gemma like breaking down because her sister died. Yeah, in she fact, never cries. There's like this weird. I feel like in the beginning, they're I'm kind of like. Like, me, like they're kind of like, Gemma's just like, oh, Gemma. Because they're in the car and like, you know, the, you know, Kate, uh, Katie is like on her iPad, not wanting to fucking talk to her parents. Well, no, she's not on her iPad. She's, she's on her iPad. It's talking a bird. to 
her like demon Furby that the company her aunt works for. Yeah, made. and so like it's supposed to be like I thought we were gonna limit screen time. I can't believe Gemma sent her that. Da, da, da. And it's just but like then when we see Katie with Gemma, it doesn't seem like they're very close. It doesn't seem <laughs> that they're close, but it also just doesn't seem as if like that Gemma had any care. And it just seems like also like that Katie's parents couldn't like well not katie's parents the dad gives her kind of a pass by the like maybe four minutes that we get to know them in the back seat of the car it's like her sister's kind of like oh Gemma, <laughs> only to find out and we out, never really know why and only to find <laughs> out that her sister was like if something were to happen to me you need to take care of my daughter and it is it's it is a mess it is a mess because it's supposed to be like what she packs up and gets everything within a week after the it, the beginning died. is very much like we need to get this little girl with this robot as quickly as possible so we're going to rush through all of these yeah, plot no points there's no funeral scene there's no moment you know that you know that slow camera of watching this girl get down a single tear as they lower her her family and she throws a single flower in their kind of bullshit that they do. There's no like Yeah, they don't I'm even do the so, clichés. Like sorry, it's they pack up her shit. She's put into a bedroom that used to be an exercise room. And you know, like Gemma is supposed to be and we just see that Gemma is like b- busy with work. Well, cuz and then with Gemma, the storyline for her is they've developed this artificial intelligence and then did they explain where they got the robot from? They did they build it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So what is what it is? It is felt like, like the, they were, okay, It so, felt like they got something from like army surplus. So or what something. it was is like the like she made these like interactive Furbies, and a new corporation is coming in making cheaper versions of yes. it. And they're yeah. like, Gemma, you promised that you would make us a cheaper version of it. And it turns out she spent like ten thousands of dollars. Oh, millions, making, millions, like of millions, making a new thing. And it's like that would have been a little bit more interesting because she's. Like, she's sort of, like, hyper-fixated on the new thing. She's kind of like, what we need to focus is not making a cheaper version. We need to make a better toy that's so hard to copy that nobody will want to know what but to do. But my question here is, when you watch a story with characters in it, one of the important parts of that story is motivation. Understanding why characters do what they do. Yeah. Because then we understand why they make mistakes and what their goals are. Why is Gemma so obsessed with this one specific thing? So I think it's supposed to be like she has been wanting to make an android for a while. But, you know, it's supposed to be, oh, no, she's occupied with with Katie. Like, da-da-da. It's dumber than that. Yeah. It's dumber than that. It's she's a childless woman. So she's designing and building a child for herself. That's That's what Megan is. But the lesson is... You can't just build a child. You just have to learn to love the children that you have, which is what Katie is, right? But it's, and so by the end of the movie, she and Katie are bonded. But it's like here's because the thing, they realized that, Megan was not what she should have done. That you know that would have been interesting had they. Well, the movie's actually, not that deep. Like, I don't know. Had they actually like gone with the route of being like, oh, she was doing this in order to like substitute for a child. But yeah, and that's maybe, me. I am putting that on the movie. To just make it have an actual, like, point. But the thing is, what it is, is, like, during the film, it's supposed to be, like, Katie is, like, having a really hard time adjusting. Uh, Gemma is showing her, like, this old android that she had made. 
and she's like, oh, he, did, he can do this, this, and this, but he's like, there's some flaws well, he's about not even him. an android. It's just like... Almost like one of those battle bots. Yeah, it's, a, it's like it's a humanoid a battle bot. Control like with her controller gloves. And speak up. This movie is full of setups. Yeah, and yeah, obvious yeah. setups where it's like, <laughs> oh, hmm. There's a there's a a humanoid robot that's about the same height as Megan that's stored in the garage that can be controlled with these special gloves. I wonder if that will come back in the third <laughs> act of the movie and play an important part. And so. Um... Katie is like, I mean, like, oh, wow. If, like, I had this for a toy, I wouldn't want any other toy. And that's when Gemma's eyes sparkle and she's like, I'm going to finish making Megan. And, well, uh, we also have to point out that at work, her boss, David, who's played by, he's a Chinese-American comedian I've never heard of. I think he was, like, in Crazy Rich Asians. I think he's one of those people who's maybe having, like, a moment right now. Uh, Ronnie Ching. Mm-hmm. Is playing her boss at this company. Yeah. And he, like most of the people in this movie, are not very good at acting. And I'm thinking it must be the direction or the script, right? Yeah. Uh, but he's very stiff and not believable. A lot of people are stiff in this film. He's not believable. A lot. And he is just. there. All of the people that Megan kills in this movie, you will know she's going to kill them the minute they're introduced, even before Megan has come online, <laughs> because the movie makes you hate them from minute one. Like, the neighbor, uh, Gemma's neighbor and her dog. There's only one other child who's given a name in this movie, a little boy. We're going to talk about that fucking school in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And immediately you're like, I fucking hate this kid. I want Megan to kill him. So never once, the only people you don't want Megan to kill, and it's just because they're not, you know, overtly unlikable, are Gemma and Katie. You're like, well, you know, they're not evil, <laughs> but like everyone else is just, oh, that's clearly an evil person who we're supposed to want to die. And it's just, it's, it's just a big mess. And sort of like, the thing is like, Malignant was a big mess. Along with itself. It was more enjoyable than this. It though. was more enjoyable, but Malignant had this weird thing with the younger sister and and her. And then you also felt like the younger sister and the detective were forming a relationship. That didn't go anywhere. That didn't go anywhere. Well, when we're talking about Malignant, the reason why Malignant worked is for two things. The stylization was far more interesting to look at. And it took itself seriously enough that it made it funnier. Yeah. With Megan, it's not taking itself seriously from the opening, which is a commercial for these, like, pseudo-Furbies. And so from minute one, you're like, oh, this is a movie that's meant to be funny. And the minute you've told me your movie's meant to be funny, I'm going, okay, well, then now you've set the bar. This is a comedy. So I'm going to judge this on the merits of a comedy. And the thing is, this movie isn't funny. Well, there is one funny scene. There is a funny scene (laughs) where a detective, after someone gets murdered, points out like an absurd thing about the murder and then goes, I probably shouldn't laugh about that. And that's, (laughs) he's he's so deadpan. It's just the laughing and then him stopping. Yeah. He goes like, ha ha ha, I probably shouldn't laugh about that. (laughs) That's like the funniest thing in the movie. Everything else in the movie, it's trying to make you laugh. Yeah. Like Megan never feels like a genuine threat. No. Because, like I said, everyone she kills, you already don't like, and you revel in seeing them die. You're like, good, I hated them. I'm glad they're dead. Um, Do you think this movie was hurt by being rated PG-13 instead of rated R? Yes. Okay, talk to me about that. Um, I think it just... 
I think what happened was suddenly it became too precious. And what it was by making it PG-13 was going, hey guys, the whole family's going to sit here and watch this and you're going to laugh and giggle about the like stupidity of like the new, you know, the new kind of uh, toys that are out there and how we're just like, we just really just need, uh, we just need to sit down and raise our kids. And also like, uh, aren't kids like obsessed with their, uh, with their tablets, but aren't we kind of obsessed with our tablets and everything our little, is so like, obvious. Yes. And, um, well, like it's, not that it isn't gruesome, it's not that gruesome. Like, you do see someone's ear get torn off. Yeah. And that's probably about the most gruesome thing in the movie. And that's like for a horror movie that's really selling us on you want to see a killer robot when you're like, oh gosh, that, that ear got torn off. And then that's it. And like, a lot of the deaths happen off screen or the camera kind of cuts away before it gets too gruesome. Yeah, and I think it also has to do with the fact that, like, there aren't really very clear characters here. Oh, yeah. Gemma is just so monotone and sort of, like... She's bland. She's bland. And it's a perfect like, Allison Williams character. But it's also, like, this weird thing, like, that she... You could have made her, like, unlikable and weird at times because... For example, she's having, like, this argument with her coworkers, and she's, like, reading through what it is that, like, their self-pitch for Megan, right? And it's supposed to be, like, her boss is going to do the self-pitch, which she's, like, she's reading everything that Megan can do, and her coworkers are kind of like, hey, um, I get that right now your niece is super happy with Megan, but it seems as if, like, you're leaving the parenting to this android, and you are not parenting this child and we just don't know if we should be promoting something like that for adults to buy and she's like but i'm not her i'm not her mom and you're like there should have been a moment where like maybe katie overhears that and becomes even more dependent on megan like have conflict between them versus the conflict being like oh well Gemma's having problem controlling katie because uh like Megan knows everything because she's like able to download everything, and then oh no, um, I forgot to write a code that's a parental override, and now Megan won't shut down when for, I need her to. For someone who built such an advanced AI, she overlooks dozens of things that it's, you're like, okay, so you're developing an AI that's looks looks to be the most advanced AI ever created on the planet, and you're just like. Yeah, I never thought to put, like, an override by the, for the creator in there. Yeah, what? and it's sort of, like, this weird thing that neither her, like, co-workers notice because they're supposed to They're the to dumbest be, people in Silicon Valley. They're supposed to be, like, as smart as she is or at the least, like, in, like, allowing her to work in a certain way. And then, like, towards the end of the film, when I say there's no characters, like, Gemma's sort of, like, there's something really off about Megan. I think I need to, like, re... Like recode her she just like something is off like she just she had my own ai thing asked me how i was feeling it never asked me how i'm feeling it's like a little siri like, like stationary yeah, robot like yeah. that she hacked into the system well of course that that, she, that's used to set up the sequel at the end yeah and that like for example like i can't view her videos and that's just super fucked up and then her like coworkers are like but we're supposed to like show this in four hours. Why would you re like? Why would you redo this? Versus it just being like, yeah, we'll do the show, but we should probably fucking do that. Like work on that because the thing is like the reveal 
it's sort of like when they do a reveal of a new iPhone, it's not as if everyone has an iPhone in their hand. They're just seeing the features. Yeah, and it's not like everybody, there's like, they're not manufacturing Megans. So they're just kind of showing, hey, this is a thing we developed. And I mean, I guess. So we, people to do, can, can do a pre-order, but before the pre-order, you can still do some stuff. Yeah, I don't know. So it's weird because it's like, especially. It felt, feels like somebody who doesn't work in the tech industry wrote the all. script. And it's yeah. funny because like, I'm taking a course right now about DevOps and it's sort of like how they're constantly being like, yeah, you like how you're supposed to have a backup coder. It's like none of that is supposed to be just Gemma's well, brilliant. You think about like the HBO show Silicon Valley. A lot of troublesome, problematic cast members. We agree. Uh, <laughs> but the way that show was written, it felt like it was written by people who actually worked in the tech industry, but they made everything very easy for people who didn't work in the tech industry to understand. But there was an authentic authenticity to it. Yeah. This film feels so inauthentic. And I don't think you can say, oh, well, it's camp. You can be campy and still present a realistic idea of Artificial, artificial intelligence. And especially that this movie is coming out at the same time that ChatGPT is so popular. And people are noting how locked down that is by the creators because they want to maintain control of the AI. Yeah. Th then you would have this person who is developing something and being given millions of dollars to develop it is just like throwing this unhinged robot out into the world it's also like, just the fact that her co-workers don't agree with her after arguing with her at the beginning that something was off about it to just be like no you're supposed to do this what are you talking about well and that's yeah where you have it's a kind of movie where you have a character point out something and then later that character completely contradicts what we knew about them yeah, but acting like it's not a big deal and now so basically like you have these two characters two other characters that are supposed to be like you know, Gemma's friends, people that she uh, relates to and is looking into, like, advice. And they're just sort of, like, they're just there to let the story just be. The only consistent character outside of Gemma and Katie and, like, the android is basically her boss because her boss is like, let's get this done. I need money. I need money. That's his whole character. Yeah, oh, yeah. And they stick to it. He's everyone very else, consistent. <laughs> everyone else fluctuates because he has an assistant who just like apparently is stealing yeah, stuff. That was like a whole subplot where like we see his assistant dragging and dropping code onto an external hard drive or something. And it never gets brought up. It, oh no, it gets brought yeah. up because when Megan kills she him, knows she's about like it. knows about it, but she's like, "Oh no, I'm gonna blame the death of your of uh, your boss on you, and then you're gonna end up killing yourself because you stole my stuff." But and why did he steal bad. it? It just it was it made no sense because they never like, showed that he was working with like a rival company they or didn't something. Show that he was like trying to sell it to the highest bidder. Yeah, or that he was debating on it. She was just basically like, "Oh, you chickened out," but you know what? I'm gonna use that in order to have you killed off but it's this weird that she's defeated that same night so there was no reason for that they just wanted to give you a reason to let that guy die and for the audience to be like you know what he deserved it yeah it's a movie it's like they wanted us for it to be on megan's side in a weird way <laughs> yeah i mean yeah you're on megan's side the entire fucking movie until like the end when you're like, it's like i guess i don't want you to kill jim and katie they're not evil like the thing is like if we they wanted us more on her side then we needed to have katie hear Gemma go i'm not her fucking mom i'm not like i'm just doing what my yeah. sister asked me to do in a passionate way versus uh the lovely i'm not her mom 
you know, it's it's and almost, not showing an ounce of emotion yeah, on your face. It's almost up to Sophia Coppola, uh, <laughs> like the third, <laughs> like dad. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is very Godfather three level acting <laughs> yes. is what we're getting. And um, and it's like I think you can you're gonna watch this once. You're gonna laugh, especially with friends. You're gonna laugh your ass off, and you're never gonna watch it again. It's not like Malignant. I could see watching Malignant again because that movie just. Like it aim, it's aiming for the fences there. It's going like extreme. And this movie, and it's doing something I've started to notice in popular culture with certain genre entertainment. I like to call it the Rick and Mortification of entertainment. Yeah, where it's this faux edginess, where it's like, uh, can you believe we went there? And it's like, well, you didn't really go anywhere. Like it's edgy for a middle schooler. And, I mean, that's who this movie is for. If you're, like, 12 to 14 years old, they made a movie for you, friend. You are going to eat this shit up. But if you are anyone who likes coherent characters with consistent motivation and, like, there's nothing wrong with camp. But camp can also be, like, clever. There's nothing clever about this movie. No. And it could have been. It could have been a really clever, smart like sci-fi horror movie and it's just a dumb forgettable I piece mean, of shit i would go again like i don't think about it more as like uh rick and morty i think about it more in the lines of american horror story no like, american horror I, story has some merits to it yeah i mean but even, but towards <clears throat> the end of it it was getting to the point that it was ridiculous and i think what it the problem also have to i have to i have with this film is that it notes it notes the like the you know the loopholes and decides to close them up but it does it in a way that's not clever or funny it's sort of like it's almost like going like no 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 guys before you say anything before we kill this person uh let's just note this so this way well, we wrapped it up it's and self-aware to the point of being a problem yes where it's you need to stop anticipating the audience reaction to a scene or a character or where they think the plot is going to go because it, you're such a predictable movie. Yeah. Just give up on it. Instead, embrace the predictability, but amp up the comedy. Like, bring someone to, in to punch up the script and make it, like, genuinely funny and satirical. Yeah, and you have to make it to the point that if we're supposed to be on, like, Megan's side, we do need a little bit more of, oh, what a fucking stupid doll. Because there is that moment that we do get it when uh katie goes to this weird outside school yeah what the f it's a school <laughs> and what i knew what it was i knew what was going on it's the production company weren't able to rent a building to use as a school right maybe they ran out of money maybe they just couldn't find a location they, in time no, they wanted it to be outside well, i mean yes yeah, it works is, for the like, sequence katie has no fucking friends and they make it like also and it's set during i guess cold like the winter or the fall or something yeah it's and to, so she has no friends and it's supposed to be that Gemma makes no attempts to get her any friends but we need her to have a well, bully and they don't want to send her to summer camp because then that would take her out of the story for too long so it's like oh no i'm gonna have you attend this school where they do everything outside but then they just tell the children to go wander through the woods and as you know i'm i have a master's degree in teaching here and i'm like what is the curriculum what are they learning today and there's nothing what is happening it is like this <laughs> also this weird thing that like so 
Kate, like, Katie is having, like, a little hissy fit being, like, I'm not going to school without Megan. And Megan's oh, like, oh, it's yeah. fine. And she's sort of like, but, you know, Gemma is like, she's a prototype. We really don't need photos of her out there. No. And then, like, she, Megan is confused for another child for a second when the person opens the door to just be like, hey, Katie. And then when Megan which i wish that there had been more of that yeah they weren't playing those moments there were moments that for example the neighbors like hey those two girls that are always over there and i would really would have loved it had like that that shot when megan's looking outside and she's looking for her dog for her to be like oh shit like think about how funnier it would have been if we had not been so like oh we have to have a pg-13 rating and so we have, you know, the neighbor looking over the fence. She's like, young lady, young lady, you stop antagonizing my dog. And then Megan turns around. And she goes, what the fuck? <laughs> like, just like, that would have been funny like, to you, have those you reactions. Can even keep the PG there. Just having people shocked. No, the profanity is important. It needs to be that extreme. Because that's what we would say in those instances when you see this, like, grotesque and robo child. So, like. But then, yeah, they tell him, was it? Oh, we have a table where you can put your toys and that's all it takes for Gemma to be convinced. And Gemma stays. She's supposed she to, go to, to work. she was going to work. Yes. But, Why she, would... but she stays because she's worried about like. But like you have to go to work. You're carrying an experimental piece of technology with you. And you're just like, oh, there's a table where they can put the toys. Okay. <laughs> and like, so Katie's walking around and there's like this one kid that like Gemma happens to be talking to the mom of who is like looks older it looks a little bit older and she's like oh no but you know he is a little violent but it probably has to do with like his high iq like she's giving excuses why her kid is fucking shitty and he wasn't nasty enough for me. <laughs> like i wanted a real I just like fucking is, like, i want needed, megan to slaughter this the little thing bitch is, like, they needed to show him bullying other kids before he got to katie i think and he they, does slightly no, it's like slightly he just like flips off someone or just glaring yeah. in the background just sitting in the back and like it would have been kind of well, funnier. To- all this movie does is <laughs> is throw characters at Megan for her to murder. Yeah. That's it. They don't develop those and characters. So, like, I think it would have been funny had we had a moment of like a counselor being like this fucking kid. Yeah. That's, one of the, that's why you need the R rating. I need F-bombs need, like, in this you movie. You need like at the least like them being like, hey, you guys are going to wander around. And like one counselor being like, hey, is that protocol? He's like, he's like no, I'm just fucking shitty. Yeah. I'm tired of watching Tommy just in town. Yeah, that, the school <laughs> sequence was just utterly bizarre in that nothing about it made any sense it was pure it felt like the most amateurish kind of writing where someone's only focused on hitting plot points so they just contrive things to make plot points happen i want us to close out our talk about this movie about the megan singing sequences (laughs) she sings katie to sleep at one point by doing a cover of Titanium by Sia. <laughs> Which I found so fucking That was funny. Devious. It was that funny. That was fucking because funny. Because here's the thing. So when Megan starts singing, I started to laugh because here's the thing. Seth has not heard this song. I've heard, like, this used to be on one of my running lists. Well, I mean, I could tell that this was a pop, like a oh, contemporary yeah, yeah, yeah. pop song. Like, you I do. got that vibe. But I started laughing because I already knew the lyrics and you were just like, what? It's like, and it's also her spine is made of titanium. So, like, there's like all this link. It's but she sings it, yeah, to her as a lullaby at night like, for her to go 
to sleep. Shoot me down and I won't fall. <laughs> and it is kind of foreshadowing the end of the movie. Exactly. We're like, you can't shoot Megan down. She's an unstoppable Terminator. Uh, but yeah, it's like I said, you're, you can watch this. You and your friends are going to laugh your asses off. And then you will never watch it again. You're going to forget about it. The thing is, like, you it doesn't have any staying power. You won't laugh as hard as you would have at, and like during Malignant. Because Malignant was so fucking insane. It just, like, <laughs> it was the, going from, like, zero to 60. Because Malignant, the thing is, like, Malignant gave you no hints as to what the twist was. Well, even the trailers for Malignant were still just very, like, standard horror fare. Exactly. And Megan, like, from the marketing was already like, huh, remember Malignant? Huh, we got we got this other crazy movie coming. And the thing is, like, it would have been more funnier had we not seen any of the dance scenes until the fucking yes. movie. And, like, the thing is, like, she only dances that weird way once. And so you, the whole movie, you're like, do the dance, Megan. <laughs> Do the dance. What's she going to do to dance? So think about, imagine if that had not been in the trailer and we're watching the movie and all of a sudden Megan is like popping and locking. And you're like, <laughs> what is this movie? And that's what Malignant felt like because if you remember the, the jail sequence in Malignant is one of the most unexpected, like the costuming on characters in the jail cell makes no sense. The way it's shot is crazy. And the cinematography in Malignant is good. The cinematography in this movie is bland and boring and dumb. Malignant feels feels like a piece of art. Yes. This is a piece of... This is just a product that got shit out of like a movie studio. It's just like people are going to forget about it within a few like months. And the sad thing... I'm sure they're making a sequel. And the thing is like... For a few weeks, people have made this like their fucking personality. Like, yes. you know, there, like you were saying, there has to be a drag queen somewhere that has like pretended to be. Megan. Oh, I'm sure. And, There's like, a Megan drag queen performing in like New York right now. And like, you know what? Like, kudos to them because they'll probably add more interesting things versus. I would what rather watch them. a drag queen performing as Megan <laughs> than watch this movie again Just... at this point. Um, and that's the thing is, Malignant was not trying to be a cult camp movie. This Megan is, and that's why Megan fails. Yeah. You cannot make yourself a cult camp movie. That's not how this works. It's the audience decides when you are a cult film, not the movie itself. Yeah, there's so many different directions that this could have gone to make it a little bit more interesting. Because like, it's just the concept had potential yeah it's just like this weird thing like does the social worker get killed by megan i was thinking about that too she was set up as a character you'd want to die but i don't think she does no she just you keep thinking she's gonna get killed you're like when's when's leg gonna die she but i did uh one of my favorite scenes where is uh so Gemma takes megan away from katie and katie has a fucking fit that's the only good acting in the movie (laughs) is that little girl violet mcgraw just being like Literally, she's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> like, she slaps. She's like a drug uh, addict. Like, yeah, and then she's sort of like, uh, like, but it's also like the weird acting afterwards because she's like, I'm sorry I slapped you. I just get so crazy when she's not around. Well, they make her like a junkie, but there's no, once again, nothing in this movie is ever developed. It just happens. Yeah, like, it, <laughs> You're we, just like we oh, seen, this is what's happening now. Like, we should have had moments where maybe she's like, okay, I need to take Megan. Like we build to this you, moment, like at night, and that she has a tantrum. Like it's like this, like make it like the tension, but they 
Yeah, there's no... Yeah, talk about tension. This movie has zero <laughs> tension. You will know everything that's going to happen before it's like it happens. It's just one of those things that's like, since you don't get attached to anybody, you're not like going like, oh man, I hope they don't die. You're just kind of like, this person's going to die, this person's going to die. This person's going to have a near-death experience, but they're not going to fucking die. <laughs> so I want to close on this question, which is, what would you call the sequel? Would it be Maforgan? I don't know. I would go Maforgan. If it was me, I would just... If you want to be stupid, lean into the stupid. Or put the four where the A should be. There you go. And it's Maforgan? I don't know. Make it even harder to pronounce the title of this movie. Well, that was another Pop Cult Podcast episode in the bag for this week. Make sure to check our show notes for links to any relevant reviews of stuff we might have brought up that will link you back to our website, uh, popcult.blog. We update over there every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and extra stuff on the weekends. There's a lot more to read, uh, and I would encourage you to check it out. Also, make sure that you uh, subscribe to be notified when new episodes of our podcast are up. Over at the website, we're wrapping up a few things as we're coming here to the end of January, and we've got a bunch of new stuff coming for February. Uh, in the month of February, we will be looking at four films from uh, black director Charles Burnett, uh, sort of part of the black new wave in American cinema in the mid-late 70s, someone you probably have not heard of before, but is a pretty good director. Uh, that's going to be followed by uh, the Three Colors trilogy, which is a f- series of films I've been hearing about for a very long time, and I finally decided, you know, I'm going to watch them. Uh, and I hope you will join me as I write up those reviews. And at the end of the month, we will be doing four films by Douglas Sirk, the director who managed to get some very subversive concepts and themes into movies that don't seem to be that transgressive in the 1950s. If you enjoy what we do here on the podcast and what we're doing over there on popcult.blog, we would encourage you to think about supporting us on Patreon. We've got different reward levels from $5 to $20 a month, and we have different goals that we're working toward. I want to thank our current patrons, Becca and Matt. They both donate at the $10 writer's room level, which lets them pick one movie every month, among many other things they get to pick. And I will watch that movie and review it. If you pick that level as well, you can choose to include some of your own comments at the beginning of the review to kind of give your perspective on the movie you've chosen and why. Well, until next week, keep listening.